Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 10, Esther, chapters 9 and 10, the end of our study of Esther. We're going to conclude our study of Esther today. Now for me, Esther has been an excellent example of what happens when serious students of the scriptures, you, take the time to examine God's word and you accept it for what it says within the context and the setting of the times. Suddenly, the characterizations of it that we've all heard in the past don't much match with what we read. Esther, it seems, is not a victim of of abuse by a barbarian Persian king. Mordecai is not an underprivileged, powerless Jewish father who had his adopted daughter ripped from his arms by a fiendish Persian army. Rather, Esther took to her role as queen of Persia like a duck to water. And her husband, the king, treated her with tenderness and with respect. Mordecai, as it turns out, was Jewish royalty who held an important though unnamed position within the Persian government and he rose to become the second most powerful man in the land and was immensely popular throughout the Persian Empire. So before we delve into chapter 9, let's take some time to remember and summarize what we learned last week about Judaism and Jewishness because it plays a significant role in our story and all that's going to happen in the Bible from here forward since it is, after all, a collection of Hebrew documents written in various Hebrew cultural contexts. First of all, it is critical to understand that a term can have quite different Meanings. It can mean different things at different points in history. As an example, today the word meal means breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But only 250 years ago, it did not mean to sit down and eat. It meant crushed grain. In fact, the Christian tradition of saying grace prior to eating has come primarily from a misinterpretation of the word meal. So a meal offering is not a sacrifice or a ritual prayer that occurs when we sit down to eat. Rather, it's a sacrificial offering to God of ground grain. It's the same with the terms Judaism and Jew. Judaism is a religion. Being a Jew is a personal identity. But it always wasn't like this. What makes a person a Jew has changed over time. Its current meaning is not even agreed to by lawmakers and rabbis or scholars. For them, in our era, it could mean a race, it could mean a family history, for others it means practicing Judaism in some form, for others it just means not being a Gentile. A 
Jew doesn't have to accept or practice any religion at all to be considered a Jew in some cases. So in Esther chapter 8, when we read that many Persians, meaning Gentiles, non-Jews, became Jews when Mordecai was elevated to second in command, why did they do that? We're told it was fear of the Jews. Many Persian commoners felt that with the, the revelation that the queen, Esther, and the new chancellor of Persia, Mordecai, were Jews, and upon the decree that permitted the Jews of the empire to vigorously and without mercy attack those who might follow Haman's decree to kill all the Jews, it meant to them they needed to switch rather than to fight. These Persian Persian Gentiles wanted to go along to get along. There is a huge rise in Europe in our day of natural-born Europeans, most with long-time European heritage, converting to Islam. And at the bottom of their decision to do so lies a fear. And for those converts, a certainty that Muslims will soon bring their new will be their new masters. So they want to get on the winning side as soon as possible for their own protection, their own well-being. That is more or less what these Persians did who became Jews in our story. So the question we explored was, by what definition did Mordecai and Esther see themselves as Jews in the first place? What actions or behavior made a new Jewish convert, a former ethnic Persian, a Jew? The answer? It's complicated. And it's not entirely clear. First, the term Jew was actually born after the exile. And it refers to the Roman province of Judea, which didn't come about until around a century before the birth of Christ. So the term Jew is what you call an anachronism. That is, Jew is a term from a later era that was applied to an earlier era, even though that term wasn't really in use then. It's like referring to the Chumash Indians who were early inhabitants of the Southern California area. It's like calling them inhabitants of Los Angeles. There was no such place as Los Angeles when they lived and they thrived. However, we say Los Angeles even in textbooks because it's a contemporary name for the same place. It makes it easy to communicate exactly where it is we're talking about. So even though our English Bibles will use the term Jew prior to exile, that's a misnomer because that term wasn't in use at that time. The more accurate English word that better gets to the meaning is Judahite. Judahite at first denoted a person who was a member of the tribe of Judah. Later, when Judah became the name of a kingdom, an identifiable landmass, not just a tribe, we find that the term Judahite evolved 
And it came to mean citizens of the kingdom of Judah more than only members of the tribe of Judah. Therefore, a person from some other Israelite tribe, Benjamin, for instance, which was Esther's and Mordecai's tribal heritage, they might migrate into the kingdom of Judah and declare their allegiance to the king of Judah, thus becoming citizens of Judah. Now they're called Judahites. Judahites. But what complicates matters further was that a new and different religious expression sprang up. It was different than the religion that the people of Judah originally practiced back in the days when there was a sovereign kingdom of Judah ruled by David and his descendants. And this new religious expression came about during their exile to Babylon and then Persia and that religious expression eventually became to know, be known as Judaism. You won't find the term Judaism in the Bible. Notice the term Judaism. It's an ism that relates to Judah. And Judah was an exile. This new religion of Judaism occurred because it became impossible to practice very many elements of their former religion as it existed prior to the exile because the central icons and symbols of their former religion that I labeled Hebrewism, just to give it a name, were the Torah. It was the laws of Moses, the temple, the priesthood. But because the temple and the priesthood were no more, the exiles found themselves on a foreign land with no means to ritually cleanse themselves. No means to atone for their sins according to the laws of Moses. The teachers and enforcers of the law, the priesthood, that was also defunct. And out of this circumstance arose Jewish leaders to fill the void. They somehow decided that prayer could achieve atonement, and that a new group, and then a new group of self-appointed religious leaders, they could teach the people the best ways to follow God. But now, where might they assemble to worship, to be led in these foreign lands that had temples to all kinds of different gods, but none to Jehovah God of Israel? At first, the Jewish congregations were small, ad hoc groups, probably meeting in people's homes, out in open fields. But in time, something more formal was sought. And as the religion of Judaism, they didn't call it that then, gained steam, came the birth of the synagogue as its center. It was as a place to practice, to observe these doctrines and customs that were born. So Judaism and its foremost expression, the synagogue, were man-made institutions created during the exile of the Jews to Babylon, then as a dispersed people who willingly lived in the Persian, then the Greek, then the Roman empires. But recall that when the Jews were freed under King Cyrus, the Persian king who conquered Babylon and took their empire away from them, the Jews were released to go home to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem and their temple. However, without any biblical explanation, we hear of only a small fraction of the couple of million or more Jews in the Persian Empire who went back to Judah. 
Why? Because Persia was their home. They were born in exile. This is the only country and only life they ever knew. They identified with it. And by all accounts, the life they had was generally a pleasant one. They were well accepted by the other ethnic groups of the empire. But second, because of the creation of Judaism in the synagogue system, they felt they had solved their religious problems of ritual purity and atoning for sin. And so for them, a temple and a priesthood in Jerusalem was more or less redundant. They even had houses of worship conveniently located in their communities, synagogues. And so they were becoming more and more well-organized and vibrant. The temple was a distant memory. So when some Jews finally did venture back home, Judaism and the synagogue concept followed them back. And as we open the New Testament, we find it was the synagogue that was part of everyday Jewish life in the Holy Lands. Its existence wasn't questioned. Yeshua went to synagogues. We read of it constantly. And he taught there. Paul went to synagogues. And the first organized groups who followed Christ were attached to synagogues. We hear nothing negative in the Bible against synagogues. And as proof that the synagogue was an invention that occurred not in the Holy Land, but rather in foreign places during the exile, all of the oldest synagogues ever found have been discovered outside of Israel. The most ancient synagogue ever uncovered is in the city of Stobi in the Republic of Macedonia, the home of Alexander the Great. It is dated to about the time of Alexander's conquest of Persia, the mid-300s B.C. The next oldest synagogues, only fragments of it have been found, was found in Egypt, that about 300 B.C. The next oldest after that was found in Delos, Greece. It's dated to about 150 B.C. And the oldest synagogue found so far in the Holy Lands is about a mile southwest of Jericho. It dates to about 70 B.C. So what we learn from this is that synagogues as the places where Judaism was practiced were first established in foreign lands where large populations of Jews lived, what we today call diaspora Jews. And only later do we find the existence of synagogues in Israel. Even so, they were present, they were established in the Holy Lands well before the birth of Christ. The thing is, we need to understand that Judaism and the synagogue were man-made responses and solutions to circumstances of the times. It seemed right to the people who created and led them, and yet, when compared to the biblical commandments, there's a wide gap, and there is conflict. The same thing happened with Christianity. At first, there was simply the way that Yeshua taught. He taught his disciples to follow it, and it involved the instructions of the Hebrew Bible. But in time, this was co-opted 
by Gentiles who took this new way to foreign lands reshaped it, remolded it until it was completely taken over by the Roman Emperor Constantine and the Church of Rome and then it became an entire new religion that like Judaism began with a goal of solving a problem but for the leaders of Christianity the problem was how do you exclude Jews how do you keep Jewish ways out of it How do you keep Jewish leadership out of it? So that Christianity could become a Gentiles-only religion much the same way that Judaism had become was, of course, a Jewish-only religion. But by now, neither Judaism or Christianity much resembled the God-ordained religion of the Bible. So it was just a small, dedicated, spirit-filled remnant of Jews who returned to Judah during Esther's day. It was their fervent hope to rebuild and reestablish the priesthood and the temple with its services and to do their best to reestablish the true Hebrewism based on the Torah and the laws of Moses, the Bible. But the vast majority of diaspora Jews preferred this new Judaism. They weren't interested in making the temple their center of worship because the many synagogues had replaced it. And the many synagogue leaders weren't very keen on giving up their authority and their flocks to a reestablished and reauthorized priesthood in Jerusalem. So this constant battle for power and preeminence began that remained in full swing for a few hundred years and through the days of Yeshua and also through the days of Paul and John. Who would have authority? Who would represent the truest expression of the religion of the God of Israel? Now that the temple was back, should there be synagogues at all? At times compromises were worked out. At other times, there was open warfare among the various Jewish factions. Recall the zealots we read about, who even had assassins among them to kill others that they didn't agree with. And this was the societal and the historical backdrop under which the New Testament was written. But the beginnings of all this can be seen in the book of Daniel, and even more so here in the book of Esther as we encounter many Gentile Persians switching loyalties to the Jews, becoming Jews so as to avoid trouble to get on what they saw as the winning side. What did being Jewish mean to them? Hard to tell. But it certainly didn't mean following the laws of Moses. It didn't mean moving to Judah and it didn't mean longing for a temple in Jerusalem that they knew nothing of. It likely didn't involve circumcision. And this is because it also didn't mean any of that to most of the Jews of the exile by this time. So, with that as a background, let's now read Esther chapter 9. And by the way, there is there are no Greek additions to this chapter. Esther chapter 9, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1095. 
Esther chapter 9. The time approached for the king's order and decree to be carried out, the day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to overpower them. But as it turned out, the opposite took place. The Jews overpowered those who hated them. Thus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, the Jews assembled in their cities throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus to attack anyone who tried to do them harm. No one was able to withstand them because all the peoples were afraid of them. All the officials of the provinces, the army commanders, the governors, those who occupied, uh, those occupied with the king's affairs helped the Jews because they were afraid of Mordecai. For Mordecai had become a powerful person in the king's palace and his fame spread throughout the provinces. Mordecai continued to grow increasingly powerful. The Jews put all their enemies to the sword. There was a great slaughter and destruction as they did whatever they wanted to to those who hated them. In Shushan, the capital, the Jews slaughtered 500 men. They put to death the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamdata, the, the enemy of the Jews. Parshendata, Dalphon, Aspata, Porata, Adalia, Aridata, Parmashta, Arsai, Aridai, and Vaisata. They did not touch the spoil. The same day, after the king had been told the number of those killed in Shushan, the capital, he said to Esther the queen, If the Jews have slaughtered 500 men in Shushan, the capital, and the ten sons of Haman, what have they done in the rest of the royal provinces? Now, whatever your request, you'll be granted it. Whatever you want, it will be done. Esther replied, If it pleases the king, let the Jews in Shushan act again tomorrow in accordance with today's decree. Also have Haman's ten sons hanged on the gallows. The king ordered these things done. A decree was issued in Shushan. They hanged Haman's ten sons. So the Jews in Shushan assembled also on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men in Shushan, but they didn't touch the spoil. The other Jews, those in the royal provinces, had assembled, defended their lives, and won rest from their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but without touching the spoil, on the 13th day of the month of Adar. So on the 14th day of Adar they rested, and they made it a holiday for celebrating and rejoicing. However, the Jews of Shishan assembled on both the 13th and the 14th days of Adar, so it was on the 15th that they rested and made it a holiday for celebrating and rejoicing. This is why the Jews of the villages, those who live in unwalled towns, make the 14th day of the month of Adar a day for celebrating and rejoicing, a holiday and a time for sending other, each other portions. Now Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, instructing them to observe the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day every year. This is to commemorate the days on which the Jews obtained rest from their enemies and the month which was, for them was turned from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday. They were to make them days of celebrating and rejoicing, sending portions to each other and giving gifts to the poor. So the Jews took it upon themselves to continue what they had, what they had already be, uh, began to do and as Mordecai had written to them because Haman the son of Hamdatha the Agadite, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had thrown poor, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when Esther came before the king, he ordered by letters that Haman's wicked scheme, which he had plotted against the Jews, should recoil on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. This is why these days have been called Purim, after the word poor.
that this because of everything written in his letter and what they had seen concerning this matter and what had, become upon, what had come upon them, the Jews resolved and they took it upon themselves, their descendants and all who might join them, that without fail they would observe the two days in accordance with what was written in this letter at the appointed time every year. And that these days would be remembered and observed throughout every generation, every family, every province and every city and that these days of Purim would never cease among the Jews or their memory be lost by their descendants. Then Esther the queen, the daughter of Abichil, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority to confirm a second letter about Purim. He sent copies of it to all the Jews to the 120 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus ensuring their peace and security and requiring the observance of these days of Purim at their designated times as Mordecai the Jew and Esther the queen had enjoined them as they had established for themselves and their descendants concerning the matters of fasting and lamenting. At Esther's orders, these matters of Purim were confirmed and put in writing in the book. <clears throat> there are two ways we can view the events of this chapter, some of which are horrific. Either they're true or they're greatly exaggerated and actually meant to be a farce and a comedy. The second option has become a popular opinion in recent times. Now, I personally find that view appalling because there's nothing funny about the deaths of 75,000 people. And I don't think that the people of that era would have thought so either. But it is a good way to try to once again discredit the Bible by people who have an agenda to do just that. The first two verses explain how the tables were turned and it was the Jews who triumphed when only weeks earlier it looked like the end of them as a race of people. From a distant viewpoint, we need to notice that the many Persians that there were many Persians that, that, that ignored that second edict that was obvious in its intent to nullify the first edict that had ordered all the deaths of, the, of, of all the Jews. The only reason that others would have followed it seems to be because of a deep within the souls of many Persians burned the spirit of Amalek typified by an irrational hatred of the Jews this hatred so blinded some people that they were willing to put their lives on the line to act it out and so we find in our story that thousands of Persians were killed in, in the process in fact the words of verse 1 saying that the Jews were attacked by uh, says that the, uh, the Jews were attacked by those who hated them the Hebrew word that's translated into hatred in most English Bibles is, is uh, sane and it indeed means an intense a great hatred of that same kind that we saw from the Nazis towards the Jews in World War, World War II and as both edicts commanded the Jews on the one side assembled with their weapons ready for battle some Persians on the other side ready to attack and kill the Jews and take their possessions the date was Adar 13th and throughout the 127 districts of the Persian Empire there were these isolated skirmishes not surprisingly verse 3 tells us that the Persian army commanders and the government leaders of all the provinces and districts came down on the side of the Jews they weren't stupid. 
They fully understand that they were, as of now, subservient to Mordecai the Jew. The king had a Jewish queen. So even if some of them carried the spirit of Amalek in their souls and would have otherwise happily participated in the Jewish genocide, their political survival instincts kicked in and they did the pragmatic thing. Verse 6 speaks of what happened in Shushan, Susa, the capital city. And it says that 500 Persians were killed. But, a little later in verse 13, we find the Jews attacking Persians in Susa the next day. Again, and 300 were killed. This is often considered an error or an exaggeration, or just a fanciful story by many Bible commentators. However, they've missed the point. You see, Shushan was divided into two parts, as was typical of capital cities in that era. There was the royal part of the city, then there was the rest of the city. Sometimes scholars called that royal part the Acropolis. We find this same setup with the city of Jerusalem. It had its royal part, called the city of David, and it had its common part, just Jerusalem. So in verse 6, when it speaks of Shushan as the capital, it is speaking of the royal Acropolis. So in the royal area of Shushan, 500 people took up arms against the Jews. No doubt they were political opponents. And they were killed. The next day, the Jews were allowed to resume fighting, but this time it was in the non-capital portion of Shushan, where everybody else lived. And there were 300 people that took up arms against the Jews, and they were killed. We also see another matter arise that's often called an error, an exaggeration for the sake of telling a fictional story. We read in verse 7 of the execution of Haman's family during this uprising. It says that all ten sons of Haman were killed. But then, later on, in verse 14, it says the king ordered Haman's ten sons to be hanged. This is not two separate accounts of the execution of Haman's sons. The first mention of it in verse 7 explains they were executed. The second mention of it in verse 14 is to explain that King Xerxes ordered their already dead corpses to be impaled on poles for public display. Now we've already discussed this. It was a common practice and we discussed the reasons why they did it that way. Now verse 12 is, in my opinion an expression of astonishment by the king over the great amount of deaths must have been very unexpected in his capital city and his concern over how many must have then died out in the provinces he would know the death toll immediately in the capital city because he was there but it would take months for the news to flow in from all the 127 districts to know the number killed there. So upon hearing of the death toll in the Acropolis, Esther asked permission to allow the bloodshed to continue one more day so that only in the city of Shushan could those who live in the non-royal section of the city be dealt with. Exactly why it needed to be this way isn't explained. And it can only be speculation that we could venture a guess, and I'm not going to do that. We'll just have to accept that this is what happened, and we just, the, the reasons for it are unknown. But then, as an obvious explanation of why Purim was, at least at first, 
celebrated as it was, it would be a two-day holiday. The 14th and the 15th of Adar, the 12th month, that is, in the capital city, there were two days of battles, the 13th and the 14th, and the battle ceased on the 15th. But everywhere else in the Persian Empire, there was battling only on the 13th, so the battling ceased on the 14th. And as part of the commemoration of this event, we're told that portions of food were given. Now let me take a moment to explain the intent of this giving of portions. The Hebrew word for portions is mana. Now it's not manna as fell from the sky in Exodus, but it's from the same root. And it has a it has a has a link between the two of it. So these portions are called mana. It means portions or parts. And the idea is in the sense that you were giving something, given something valuable or important. And you've now saved a piece of it to give to someone who didn't get any. It also meant it, meant, meant it in the same sense that Paul used it in his famous dissertation in Romans 11. I'll remind you, Romans 11.16, Now if the challah offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf, and as the root is holy, so are the branches. That is, if a portion of bread dough is holy, then so is all the rest of it. Or because the entire loaf is holy, then each of its portions is holy. Thus the portions in this verse in Esther are love gifts given to people from what others were given. It's a joyous spirit of sharing, of being sure that all have a chance to benefit and join in the celebration. Thus it has become customary at Purim to give gifts of food to one another. Often to people you don't know, but you might think need a maybe a cheering up or maybe they're needy. Now verse 15 explains that Mordecai recorded all these events of the slaughter and because of what happened he instructed the Jews of Persia to honor the the days of the 14th and the 15th of Adar when they turned sorrow into gladness. Now I want to pause to make a point because I cannot tell you the number of Christian articles that condemn the holiday of Purim and what it stands for because of all the people, about 75,000, that the Jews killed on that day. Even though it has for a very long time been an expression of Christianity to be passive in the face of aggression and violence, the Lord has not eliminated the right of His people to self-defense. The edict to the Jews of Persia was that they may attack those who first attacked them and then only for one day. This was about preserving life and limb. It was not vengeance for an insult or to capture somebody else's belongings and wealth. That is, this was not about shame and honor. And shame and honor is the underlying principle, social principle, in Middle Eastern culture. And when our Lord Yeshua, by the way, spoke to us about how if we're slapped on one cheek we should turn the other one, this was about shame and honor, not about life and limb. 
there was, and I think still is, hardly a greater insult than for a Middle Eastern man to be slapped on his face. This is an invitation to a blood feud. Because culturally, if he doesn't do something, if he didn't do something about it, he lived in shame indefinitely. And Christ said, we should not react to a personal offense or an insult by returning the favor and then seeking vengeance. Rather, we should be willing to even be slapped on both cheeks and accept it as an even greater insult and shame because honor is not worth regaining or defending it with violence. That was his message. That was what he meant. Again, this is anything but an abrogation of God's permission to his people of the right to self-defense up to and including killing the perpetrator. We have the right to fight to save the lives of our family and our friends and of ourselves from an unjust attack. And the Jews in Persia exercise that God-given and by the way God-orchestrated right and they were victorious. They did nothing wrong. You know what? Yeshua himself wouldn't have chastised them for it. Well, the remainder of this chapter goes on to explain how this infamous matter of Haman and the intended genocide of the Jews and and the Persian king along with Esther and Mordecai found a way to allow the Jews to survive. And this shall be remembered by the holiday of Purim. But I want you to note something. God didn't send fire or pestilence down upon those who planned to harm his people. Big lesson here. Instead, he equipped his people to battle to save themselves, so to speak. Our God is not a God who tells his people, including Christians, to stand idly by waiting for him to act. We are given instructions already on how to proceed and if we've studied his Torah and all of his word we'll generally know what to do we'll know what our boundaries are but more often than not we're going to have to get our hands dirty do things with effort and the sweat of our brow risky things, sometimes dangerous things things that aren't necessarily designed to benefit us the most or things that make us feel good or things that make friends and influence people. One of the highlights of this ninth chapter is the half dozen words that precede verse 11 because there it says, but they did not touch the spoil. That is, while the Jews killed scores of thousands in battle, they did not take the possessions of their opponents as that royal edict suggested and allowed them to do. They didn't take the spoils of war that by custom they had every right to take. And I maintain that this is yet another hidden in plain sight principle embedded in this story to demonstrate God and His will being carried out despite His name never once being mentioned, at least in the Hebrew version. The Jews rightly saw what they did as self-defense and the subsequent victory as holy war. 
They were fighting against the spirit of Amalek. And the Lord had long ago ordered the Hebrews to fight and to kill and to eradicate those who harbored this spirit until there was none left. The God-ordained law of Harem is that in a holy war, God is the true victor. So to God goes the spoils of war. These Jews of Persia, if they didn't know it by law, they knew it in the spirits, this was a God-ordained war and it would be most inappropriate to take the spoils because it could be seen as an attempt to steal holy property. Wisely, to their merit, they didn't take the spoils. You know, and I suspect this had an unintended consequence of amazing the Persians who witnessed the slaughter, who fully expected the Jews to become richer when this was all over. But the Jews disdained taking other people's property, the property of the dead. And then we read of many Persians becoming Jews. Some, no doubt, highly impressed by such a display of good character. What a great God they have, they must have thought. And how right they were to think it. Okay, let's move on to this little short chapter 10 that unfortunately the Greek editions have made much longer. Open your Bibles to Esther chapter 10. Unfortunately, most of what you're going to hear out of my mouth isn't in your Bibles. Here we go. Esther chapter 10. King Ahasuerus, before we get started, notice we've heard three names for him now. Ahasuerus, Ahasuerosh, Xerxes. Same name, different languages. King Ahasuerus levied tribute from the continent and the islands of the sea. All his mighty acts of power and the account of the high honor to which he had raised Mordecai is not all this recorded in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? How Mordecai the Jew was next in rank to King Ahasuerus? He was a man held in respect among the Jews, esteemed by thousands of his brothers, a man who sought the good of his people and cared for the welfare of his entire race. Now we get the Greek. And Mordecai said, all this is God's doing. I remember the dream I had about these matters, nothing of which has failed to come true, the little spring that became a river, the light that shone, the sun, the flood of water. Esther is the river. She whom the king married and made queen. The two dragons are Haman and myself. The nations are those that bonded together to blot out the name of the Jew. The single nation mine is Israel, those who cried out to God and were saved. Yes, the Lord has saved his people. The Lord has delivered us from all these evils. God has worked such signs of great wonders as has never happened among the nations. Two destinies he appointed, one for his own people and one for the nations at large. And these two destinies were worked out at the same hour and time and day laid down by God involving all the nations. In this way God has remembered his people and vindicated his heritage. And for them these days, the 14th and 15th of the month of Adar are to be days of assembly, of joy, of gladness before God throughout all generations and forever among his people, Israel. As has become typical, 
we see that the purpose of the Greek edition is to add the mention of God because the author felt it was needed. There's nothing here to debate. There's nothing of importance to the story of Esther as added or changed. The Hebrew version is essentially the ribbon that ties this entire package of Esther together and it provides what most people prefer I can tell you my wife does at the end of a good story a happy ending normal life in the empire has been restored the bloodletting the danger of a Jewish genocide is over however the harsh reality of living under a monarchy is that the king can unilaterally decide to tax his subjects for grand building projects, upgrading the military and paying for wars, as well as for the everyday supplies of food and luxury items at his palace. So when we're told that the king laid tribute on the land and the coast and the islands, it means every part of the empire was affected. We should assume from this that no particular ethnic group was singled out for oppression or were they treated differently than others. And tribute, which in Hebrew is mas, means forced labor as much as it means taxation. So both of these things occurred under King Xerxes. Verse 2 tells us something more about the advancing of culture and societal attitudes than anything else. See, back in Moses' day and earlier, it was rare that things were written down. The Egyptians were great record keepers, but it was mostly accounting records. Sometimes it was laws. It was the history of kings. But general history and events and genealogies were usually handed down by word of mouth from generation to generation. Up in Babylon... Now especially so in Persia, the craft of writing and keeping records had greatly advanced. Writing was not universal, and generally it was employed mostly by aristocrats and merchants and royalty. So something that was written down, well that was considered more valuable, more authoritative, if not immortalized. Thus, when it is said that the acts of King Xerxes and his honoring of Mordecai were written into the annals of the kings of Media and Persia, it lends much importance, especially from the Jewish point of view, to Mordecai and to his elevated position. It was now a permanent part of Persian history. Mordecai's Jewishness is emphasized as his popularity among the people of the empire. He was of course very popular among the Jews but also well liked by all of his countrymen. His countrymen were the Persians. This leads us right back to the question of what's a Jew? And what it might have been that the people who claimed to be Jews in Esther's day, and other times as well, did to express their Jewishness. Notice here that the writer of the book of Esther, if you'll look at the Hebrew versions and the, the better translations that aren't very Greekized, um, it concludes that Mordecai's countrymen are not the people of Judah. They're the general population of Persia. Mordecai has identified himself with Persia, not Judah. In modern lingo, 
Mordecai no doubt would say he's a Persian Jew. So here we see that in this era identity with the kingdom of Judah is no longer needed to consider oneself or to be seen as a Jew. It's two separate issues now. You can be a Jew and you can entirely see yourself as Persian and the two things are not in conflict. This would not have been the case less than a century earlier. At that time, being a Jew directly connected you to the kingdom of Judah. Further, nowhere in the book of Esther, not even at the ending when it might have been expected, is there mention of a longing by either Mordecai or Esther to return home to Judah. To regain the true religion. Why not? They're home. They are home. For them, Persia is home, and it's always been. Judah belongs to their ancestors a couple of generations ago. However, not all Jews in the Persian Empire felt that way. And when we open the book of Ezra, we're going to meet several thousand Jews who never felt at home in Babylon or in Persia, and they longed to go back to Judah and to reestablish the Torah-based life of the grandparents. This ends our study of the book of Esther.